South Florida's Alternative 104.3, The Shark. Hey, how's it going? Another episode of Open Swim. Would you care to introduce yourself, fine sir? Hi, my name's Garo Gallo. I am in a band called Doomsday Pop. Garo, when did you start Doomsday Pop? Wow. The official beginning was like right around 2001 when I was kind of in between bands. I was writing all these songs and I didn't really have a band to play them with. And I didn't really want to call myself Garo Gallo because I never saw myself as a solo artist. So I just kind of had this built this fictitious band around these songs that I was making and then uh, formed a band around it slowly with many different members. <laughs> so yeah, there have been several different rotations throughout the years for sure. Yeah, but this is this is the winning combination. It's, it's, it really feels like it's, it's taken my, uh, my whole life to find these three guys, like some kind of weird like Lord of the Rings journey. <laughs> That's perfect. I love the way you described it. I'd also like to know, obviously this is not your first band or your first experience playing music. What got you started and got you interested in, in music to begin with? Well, I got to give it to my brother for that. He's nine years older than me, and some of my first, like, real musical memories are when I was, like, around five, and he was about 14, when he would just be, you know, just blasting, like, Black Sabbath and Motley Crue and Dead Kennedys, and he was very eclectic, so, but he, you know, he, he always kind of had his finger on many pulses, so he was always listening to all this stuff, and some of it terrified me, but it was always exciting. Like, I, would, I remember he would be babysitting me, and like all of a sudden, like, out of nowhere, like, like I am Iron Man, like, in the middle of the night. Was, <laughs> uh, so it just was kind of fascinating, just music in general. And uh, so I guess that kind of really started it, just seeing my brother going through his different musical phases and, and sampling all of that, really. And when you started to play, what influences did you draw from? Ah, oh, the first time I picked up a guitar, I was uh, kind of really young. Like I knew I wanted to play, but like I didn't, you know, didn't really have much of a catalog. I mean, you know, my, my dad bought me a guitar, and I think I was like six or seven. No, like probably a little closer to eight. But just it, like playing, and this sounds really wimpy, but like trying to play an acoustic with you know child hands, like it kind of hurts. So I was discouraged. <laughs> Understandably so. Yeah, that makes sense. And then fast forward four or five years, now my brothers. My brother decided he wanted to start playing music, but he really didn't follow through with it. Like, he, you know, dabbled in it, and when he would leave, I would sneak in his room and take his guitar and start messing with it again. <laughs> so it kind of happened from that. The first stuff I really started playing was, like, it's very cliche, but Nirvana and the Sex Pistols. I mean, I guess my influences. When I first started playing, I would, you know, play a lot of three-chord punk and, and Nirvana, and that kind of, you know, spawned off into, like, other, I would attempt, dead Kennedy stuff, but I really wasn't that good at it. You know, I learned a lot of, I guess, what was popular music at the time, you know, Stone Temple Pilots stuff. Just, I remember I learned Boom Man. A lot of weird, like, just random things. <laughs> and Completely, like, mis mismatched. <laughs> yeah, which, by the way, how did you come to develop the, the sound that Doomsday Pop has versus the things that you learned and were influenced by? Well, okay, when we, when we go forward to Doomsday Pop, by that time I had already been in a couple of other bands. I was playing ska, two-tone ska, and like punk ska, and like all, all these things. But it never, it, it seemed like I was trying to play like styles instead of like making my own style. Right, understand. And I actually kind of attribute a South Florida legend band, um, Creamy Electric Santa. When I was at the height of my, my punkness, let's call it. <laughs> There was a band, Cream Electric Santa, that was very much part of the punk scene, but didn't sound like a punk band at all. It's really hard to explain. It's very melodic and rambunctious, and 
psychedelic, but still somehow maintaining this like punk rock feeling. And it blew me away. It was like, wow, you, you don't need pins and a mohawk to play punk rock. Like, you, you just, like, the, the real key is to, to be yourself. Like, and that's what's more punk than just about anything, is doing something that's not widely popularized by certain things. You know, like, it kind of dawned on me that the real punks really were the ones taking real risks yeah. and not just being cookie cutter. And that, that kind of changed my world. Like all of a sudden I was like, wow, I could write like a little pretty part and then follow it up with like this really weird thing and somehow still be considered in that DIY punk rock kind of aesthetic. And it really like, you know, kind of blew me away that you didn't have to only play Operation Ivy and things like that to be punk, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's so, you know, just like everything else, genres have conformities. And when it comes down to it, the, like you said, the most punk thing you can do is just be yourself and and be willing to put yourself out there no matter what the reception is. Right, and that kind of evolved into the feeling, well, it's really all just rock when you think about it. All the subdivisions are fun and, it, you know, it, it's nice to have a beer and talk to some guy that, like, knows everything about every record that was ever made and <laughs> all this. But it's really just, I, I guess maybe I'm getting old, but, like, it just feels like it's all rock, really. Uh, just different shades of rock that I tend to really fall in love with. Punk it seems more like a like a like a click now. I think you risk alienating people when you try to put yourself in a firm category or a firm genre or a firm box when there's so much amazing music out there, both on a local and national level, that maybe someone would pass over because they think it has to be a certain way instead of just giving it a listen for what it is. Yeah, and, and also because, I mean, me being a Gemini, like I, I tend to disagree with myself almost instantaneously. <laughs> um, so having an extremely huge amount of respect for the purists, you know, the ones that, that put themselves in a box on purpose because they want to carry some kind of a legacy or something like that, which I understand, you know? That's fair. It's just seeing both sides of the coin. I don't think there's yeah. anything wrong with that necessarily. So it all depends on how good you do it. <laughs> it's true, yeah. You mentioned the whole sitting down and having a beer with someone conversation and that's the kind of thing that you're very well known in the South Florida scene as a promoter as well. So I imagine a lot of our friends and and people that we have in common have sat down and had conversations with you, myself included, over the years, um, just like the one we're having right now. How did you get involved with promoting shows and organizing events in the first place? It really came out of necessity, honestly. Um, You know, when you're you're doing weird music and you're a teenager, um, a lot of club owners don't know what to make of you. You know, if if you don't, especially back then, you know, like the late, late 90s and early 2000s, it was... If you didn't have, you know, two or three sets of material that would appease a regular bar audience, you really weren't getting shows unless they were in either little dive bars or, you know, tiny little clubs, which was fun to do. But when you're trying to, you know, branch out, you're, you know, you want to play at these places, you know, like Courthouse and bigger bars and hopefully getting on to, to bigger shows. So really what I had to do was, like, hustle and kind of make bargains and, and deals with club owners saying, hey, you know, we can't do three sets but I'll bring two bands. So it'll be us and two bands, which will equal three sets. Right. You know, give a break. And a lot of times we'd end up, you know, taking practically no money. Sometimes we'd just do it for a bar tab, and sometimes we'd get lucky and be able to pay everybody. But it was just all about getting on stage was really the thing. Just getting out there and being being able to play was the, was the goal. So I had, no one was calling us saying, hey, we want you to play. So I had to go literally like a door-to-door salesman 
and go up and, you know, look as cool as I can possibly make myself and, you know, make an argument that we could fill your club with people that'll drink. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> that turned, I parlayed that, I guess, into accidentally becoming a promoter by definition. I don't know if my approach to promoting is, is very textbook, but I, I like to take risks and try to, like, you know, surprise people with things that they may not have expected. And never expect anybody to act how you expect. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, sure. that's another one. Be, be prepared for Expect you know, the unexpected. people that are calm and cool one minute and then two minutes before they get on stage, nervous breakdown, where's the singer? <laughs> um, you know, so, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of little ones. I, if, I, if I were to sit here and think this would be a much longer conversation. Hey, you actually uh, brought up a really good point. Uh, for you personally or people that you've played with, what's the craziest thing you've had happen at a show? Your own band. My own band. Ooh, okay. We had, There was one show where we were playing. Um, it was like a bar and grill kind of place that decided they wanted to start throwing events. And, um, you know, we were there playing. And uh, this man who is clearly inebriated, walked right up to me while I'm, you know, mind you, I sing and play the guitar, so I'm occupied, like, yeah. you know, hand and mouth or doing something. This guy was trying to feed me a chicken wing. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, yeah, just like, like here, like looking at me, like, you know, you, you want the chicken wing? Like, you know, like, like putting it to my mouth, like trying to get me to eat the chicken wing. That was interesting. <laughs> That's got to be the weirdest thing. That was very, very weird. Um, <laughs> People getting on there, like I said, like trying to talk to you, like while you're performing, is definitely interesting. Yeah, that's um, highly unusual, but I guess must happen a lot because you're not the first person to mention that. And also, that's a, a much less hazardous story than I got from Mike Locke of Octogato a couple of weeks ago. He said he plowed himself right off the stage one time because he wasn't looking and just went backwards and took a header off of it. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, that's rough. Being asked to play like another, and you don't have any more, and then you know, them in- insisting that you play another one again. That's that was neat. I mean, I've I've witnessed some weird things at shows. There's uh, there's been a couple of drum tacklings. One time at Kurt's, that wasn't really with Doomsday Pop, but uh, this guy decided that our set was over and tackled our drummer's drum set. Oh my god, like, your yeah, time was, is up, that, that I'm tackling you now. What? Kind of like a, an impromptu set at Churchill's, and, uh, you know, I was playing with a, a couple of songs that we had, re- you know, rehearsed, and, you know, somebody in the crowd was kind of unpleased or thought that our set was over and just took out the drums. Took it out. That was fun. <laughs> Good grief. Wow, it's crazy to hear stories like this and, and that this is reality for you guys, especially on a local level. You're just trying to like get your music out there and get, get in front of people, and you're faced with like drum tackling. <laughs> you know, they want to perform, too. I guess that's their, that's their five minutes of fame at the show. Like, they entered the, uh, the arena, the theater, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> Two may enter, only one will remain. (laughs) Well, I want to shift gears and talk about what you and the band have going on currently. Tell me about upcoming gigs, where you're at musically. Let's hear the whole thing. We have a full length that's been available for a while, Ticker. We just recently released um, four songs as an EP on our website. That's new, and on top of that... We, uh, we, I want to say within the last four or five months, we finished uh, mastering two brand new singles, which we're going to be releasing also. So 
So there's kind of a lot going on there. We have a show playing at uh, Lion and Eagle Pub on April Fool's Day for kind of a local legend, Jack Funk. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he was uh, the manager of Backboard Confessional, Michael Jackson, Rush, oh. Neil Diamond, the Who. Like he was a tour manager for these guys, you know, through the years. B-52s. I mean, really, the list is crazy how many things this guy has done. There's a lot of people that hang out from that whole crew at this place called the Lion and Eagle Pub in Boca. And um, a lot of his friends from that time period, I guess, are getting together because he was unfortunately in an accident recently. And, you know, like a lot of people know, the hospital bills stack very high, very yeah. fast. And this guy's helped so many people that, like, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of people want to help him out. So, they're, you know, we're, we're trying to raise $10,000 for his hospital bills. It's going to be a really cool show. Um, John Ralston, Legends of Rodeo, uh, Kelsey Barron, Mike Dunn, Chris Horgan, uh, Gray and Orange, and us. Footnote, we are not doing the full rock assault on this one. We're kind of doing like a kind of more of a subdued, kind of unplugged-esque version of it, I guess just because of the logistics of the event and the fact that it's going to be during the day and stuff right. like that. Set up um, and tear down and whatnot. Yeah, which is kind of out of our comfort zone, honestly. Like it's... You know, we're really, you've heard it before, we're, we're kind of loud. and Yeah, and you know, uh, out of all the years I've seen you play, I've never seen you play like that, so that's new to me, too. We did it one time, a long time ago, Tobacco Road, and, and the, the Holy Terrors actually were there, too, with another notoriously loud band. Yeah. And there's a challenge in, in translating it, you know? We're actually still uh, working out the kinks, let's say. Are you going to break out some of the new songs? Yeah, yeah, we're we're playing one of the brand new ones and one of the kind of brand new ones. I mean, because the EP we released, it took us a little while to release it because we we had um, our final lineup change, and I say final on it, you know, I want to mean that this time. Uh, the amazing Tony Walker joined the band, and right when we finished recording the EP, and we kind of wanted to take time to make sure that we would represent what we had just recorded. You know, we wanted to make sure we could play them as good or better than what we just did. So we kind of, we took time to really get to the nitty gritty and kind of the nooks and crannies. And so that one took a little bit longer to actually be released. But the good news is in the meantime of that, we've recorded two new ones. Perfect. That's yeah, even better. So we don't have a date on that yet, but um, I want to well, there'll be an announcement soon. Awesome. And a release party, I hope. Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. Garo, thanks for chatting with me this afternoon, joining me for this episode of Open Swim. Well, it was my pleasure.